What grabs your attention? Things that are helpful, things that are healthy for your mind, body, spirit, things that are meaningful. What grabs your attention? The things that are tempting, unhealthy for mind, body, and spirit, things that are chaotic. Russ told you we left about 60 people in the mountains early this morning for our church-wide retreat. It was such a great time. And yesterday afternoon, uh, and they're still having a great time, uh, but it's good to be back here with all of you. Yesterday afternoon, uh, we dispersed. It was a free afternoon from lunch until dinner. We could, it, people went hiking, and people went to breweries, and people went to the Arboretum, and walked, and people went to the apple cider festival in Hendersonville and people went to wineries and we were with the winery group. Well, it was the um, I Love Lucy great stomping festival <laughs> at this winery. And they had a, um, a costume contest of people dressed like Lucy in that episode that's the greatest of all time, you all are smiling and nodding like you know this episode, and they come parading through, and you know, it's day drinking. And you know, people have been doing a lot of it. It's a beautiful day, and so these Lucys, they were living large and having the best time. They had red wigs, curly hair, and the whole get up, and, they, and we were like, the only thing that's missing, and let me tell you, Everybody in the area had the idea to go to this winery that afternoon. And we just kept saying, all they're missing is a big vat of grapes to stomp upon. Well, they had thought of everything. As we were leaving, there's a vat of grapes. You could, I guess, pay to get in and stomp around in the grapes. And this woman decided she wanted to do it. And when she leaned down to take her shoes off, she fell right over flat. Well, of course, everybody's like, oh, my goodness. Well, clearly, she was very with wine. And the man with her is picking her up and holding her up, and she's saying, don't touch me, don't touch me. And everybody in my group just kept walking. And I'm like, we have got to stop and watch this train wreck. How in the world are y'all turning your gaze away from what is about to happen to this woman? I could not get anybody to join me in watching this. My attention, I was, I, I couldn't wait to see how that was going to fail for her. And I don't know what that says about me, that I can't turn away from a train wreck like that. But I thought about that as we were driving home this morning. I was thinking about this time of confession. What is it that gets your attention? Is it the train wreck of that poor woman that feels terrible this morning? Or is it the beauty of creation? What gets your attention? The community of fellowship, the getting to know each other, the being together and doing what we feel God is calling us to do as a community of faith? Or is it the unhealthy, crazy, chaotic things that grab our attention? What is it that motivates you to do better, be better? What gets your attention? 
Amy and I are continuing this fall to preach together two short homilies. Um, uh, Over the years, we have decided that a sermon is about five typewritten pages, double-spaced, 12-point font, and so we'll probably do two and a half pages each or four pages for me and one for Amy, you know, whichever, (laughs) however it goes, you know. Um, This series, we're trying to look at the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, and the Christian Testament, the New Testament, um, and look at how they might relate to one another. another. What might Jesus have learned as a student of the Hebrew text that impacted the way he lived and the way he taught and what he said and how he acted? And so we're trying to interact with those two texts together. I won't always preach from the Old Testament, but today I'll be looking at the Old Testament text and Amy the New. Both of these are stories that you know, um, but let me read to you again from the Exodus, the book of Exodus, the story of the burning bush. It's part of the most fundamental story of Jewish faith, liberation, the people of Israel being liberated from the Egyptians, and that story of freedom is at the heart of our theology. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here am I. And then the Lord said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The Lord said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land uh, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? The Lord said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain." But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to them, and they ask me, what is your God's name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said further, you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. I remember these words confusing me to death as a child. God's name is I Am I've just finished another book being published by Whip and Stock Publishers, and in one chapter, I deal with this title of God, I Am, and what it means. It's something we can study for a lifetime. Today, I won't be dealing specifically with that. You can ponder that name of God, what it means that I am who I am. Today, I want to deal with the turning aside of Moses as Moses sees the burning bush and stops. You have heard the ancient story. The story of Moses and the burning bush is one of the most sensational and powerful stories in the Bible. And like so much in the Bible, as I keep reminding you, we will completely miss the point and the power of the story if we can only read it like the fundamentalists do. Fundamentalists, on both the right and the left, are obsessed with all things literal. On the right, the fundamentalists say, this happened. It's in the Bible. A bush was on fire and it was not consumed. It's a miracle. And on the left, the fundamentalists say, this is hogwash. Something like this could not possibly have happened. How could you possibly believe that? It has no meaning for intelligent people in a modern world. And both fundamentalists, left and right, missed the point and the power of the story. As I reminded you last summer, when we studied the 12 minor prophets, some of which use apocalyptic imagery, I said to you last summer, you know, we can go to movies, spend good money on the latest best-selling novel, and fall madly in love with mythical creatures, amazing crazy images and narratives of otherworldly intrigue and we can go home telling our friends all about what we read or what we saw and all that we learned from those stories. You know what Harry Potter really means is but open the Bible and read a story with exactly the same kind of imagery and too many folks just shake their heads and dismiss it out of hand. Oh the Bible. So old and boring and so out of date, who could possibly believe all that stuff? Fundamentalism is the problem. In all aspects of our world, folks, fundamentalism is the problem. Fundamentalism left and right. Do not be a fundamentalist, please. Do not be a fundamentalist. Today, open your minds and more importantly, open your hearts and feel the truth of this story that is so foundational to all that is good and right and true about the religious life. It's a sort of the beginning of the religious life in the Bible, one of the very first stories of religious participation in the Bible. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him. That's the whole story. It's the whole of religious life. It's all of my sermon today. Did you hear it? 
Listen again. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, then, only then, when Moses turned aside to see, then God called to him. Now, I've spent a little time on the internet Googling about the burning bush, and you will quickly discover the skeptics, the smug atheists eager to discredit this foolish pre-scientific story, anxious to destroy all the underpinnings of supposed evidence of a divine being called God out, who sits outside of space and time, occasionally intervening with miraculous power. Oh, I get so weary of their arguments. Some of the greatest theologians in history Christian and otherwise, have insisted in accord with some of the, the atheists that God is no being at all. Maybe that God does not exist. Yes, you heard it from a Baptist pulpit. God does not exist. The word itself is too small for God. You understand? Existence is a temporal word, dependent on verifiable, material, empirical substance, all of which makes God far too small, far too ordinary, far too explainable. God's beyond existence. God is not a being. Paul Tillich says God is the ground of all being. Go figure that out. God is bigger than anything temporal. God is not a being outside of space and time. God is the source of the experience and the experience itself that humans have always struggled to explain, and for good reason. Spiritual experience is, by definition, ineffable, which means inexplainable. If any of it were fact, we would not have to call it faith. So quit trying to prove it, just live it. Quit trying to defend it, just open your heart to experience it. In the seventh book of her epic poem, Aurora Lee, Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only the one who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit rounded and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Religion begins with experience. All the words, all the doctrines, all the hymns, all the theology, all the symbols, all of that goes back to experience. Houston Smith says the beginning of religion is the experience of all. And Lamott, her book, Help, Thanks, Wow, Wow, one of the fundamental prayers. Walk outside and go, wow, and you've had a religious experience. Personal, subjective, meaningful experience. That experience need not be of biblical proportion. In other words, you do not have to witness some kind of epic miracle 
a literal burning bush in order to sense something more going on in this world and in your life. I never have. Miller, I've never seen God in all my life. Never seen a miracle of epic proportion. But what I have experienced is a lifetime of tiny moments of awe. The delicate arch in southern Utah, the Sipapu Natural Bridge, the 125-foot Lower Calf Creek Falls. Wow. The Furman Singers performing at First Baptist Church in Clemson, South Carolina, so in intricately tuned that you could hear overtones resonating above their head, resonating with the building itself and resounding in an absolutely otherworldly ethereal aura. Wow. The quiet cooing, the tiny fingers of a newborn, the random acts of kindness offered by a total stranger. Wow. The sudden clarity, the new world of insight that can open with just one sentence from a good book, one line of a poignant song, maybe one sermon. Wow. Religion begins with experience, personal, subjective meaningful experience. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, then God called to him. Now, you can reduce all of that experience to some mater material explanation. You know, it's just your brain at work in the quantum world. That's how the skeptics deal with it. And if that satisfies you, okay. But it is not irrational or unreasonable to choose to believe something deeper is at work in the world. It's not uninformed to choose to see in the things that we see something more going on. It's not irrational to trust your feelings, your emotions. It is the affirmation of the people of faith across the generations that seeing God in this world has implications that are life-changing and world-altering. If you can see God in the world, it will change your world. Being part of something grand, a story that God is weaving in this world, connects us to one another in a way I think that nothing else can. And it connects us to the whole of the universe itself. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. In a CNN travel article posted this past week entitled Lessons Learned from Hiking the Camino, James Jeffrey, who has walked more than 2,000 pilgrim miles, encourages his readers to embrace the mystical. Get out of your head during the walk and stop thinking about all your travails. Just pay attention to the physical world around you. Really consider the trees and nature, its complex composition, and all the noises accompanying it. Stop by a river or a stream and dip your finger into the water and swirl it around. Focus entirely on that for at least five minutes. It's all about slowing down. 
concentrating on and engaging physically with nature and seeing what that does for your spiritual state. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, then God called to him. For every common bush is a fire with God, but only the one who sees takes off his shoes. Now, you may not see God, but if you are willing to slow down, to look down, to look within, if you are willing to turn aside, you may just be surprised. May it be so. Amen. We continue in Matthew's gospel. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels and in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. You've heard the ancient story. Is there anything worse than disappointing someone? I would rather my father have been outright mad at me, punish me, ground me, anything other than being disappointed in me. I think I led a pretty boring and safe and even sometimes goody-two-shoes life all in the name of not disappointing my parents. I was not perfect. I did suffer a three-day suspension in high school for lying. I have really tried not to lie since then. One night, the city police caught me and my friends toilet paper rolling the teacher that was not our favorite, and they made us clean it up. So I was not perfect. I did not get arrested for it. I've made mistakes of poor judgment along the way, but by and large, I've kept my nose clean, and the motivation usually stemmed around not disappointing the people that I loved and respected the most. It is painful when we disappoint someone. I can only imagine that that is what Peter was feeling that day when he was profoundly rebuked by Jesus. The text says that Peter rebuked Jesus, but Jesus comes back at him pretty hard. When we read this passage, 
from the gospel accounts, we tend to focus on the end of this scene, that part about deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. Don't get me wrong, that's good stuff, worthy of some good sermons. But I'm pretty much going to ignore that part today and focus on the first part of this scene. Jesus was trying to prepare his friends as best he could, given that he didn't quite know himself how everything was going to go down. How could he know? How could he predict how he would be received and treated? He had a gut feeling about it, don't get me wrong, a sense of dread about it. You know that feeling, don't you? The sensation of playing out every single scenario, how it might end up, and we run that around and around in circles in our minds until we think we're going crazy. Trying to predict how people will respond, especially when we are being provocative. So given everything that he knew about how God was calling him to live, and given everything he knew about how people tended to respond to how God calls us to live, he could pretty much see the handwriting on the wall. This was not going to go well or be well received, and the disciples, that somewhat clueless and naive band of followers, well, they needed a heads up. So Jesus explained to them there's going to be suffering maybe even torture, not just that. He would likely even be killed for what he was saying and doing in the name of God. And Peter, this is a great spot to insert, bless his heart. Peter, bless his heart, thinking he was showing love and respect. Peter, bless his heart thinking he was showing solidarity. Peter, bless his heart, thinking he was protecting Jesus, said, God forbid it, like literally, God forbid that this would ever happen to you. Though it's not in the text, I almost hear Peter speaking this as protector-in-chief kind of a over my dead body will something like that happen saving grace. I can only guess that Peter was maybe then expecting a pat on the back or at very the very least a heartfelt thanks Peter you're my rock. And instead he gets the ultimate of rebukes. Get thee behind me Satan. Wow, I never want to hear that from Jesus. You are a stumbling block to me, Peter. You're getting in my way. You are distracting me because you are thinking only about human things and not of things that are sacred, holy, and divine. You are thinking about yourself, Peter, not about God. The writer of Matthew's Gospel does not let us see or hear Peter's response. I really think that's a shame. So I can only imagine that perhaps he was embarrassed and ashamed. He had disappointed his mentor, his teacher, his friend. You know what it feels like to disappoint somebody? It's gut-wrenching. 
And Peter had disappointed the very one that he cared about and loved the most. We only know that then Jesus goes on to give one of the most poignant and stringent commands. If you want to become my follower, then you are going to need to deny yourself, take up your own cross and follow. Saving your own life will mean losing yourself to a greater good. No more greedy self centered living for you, you will need to set your mind on divine things. We have no clue how Peter responded to that moment. But I can't help but believe that the whole get thee behind me Satan thing did catch his attention. Russ pointed out the wow factor that captures our attention, like bushes that are burning but not being consumed by the fire, and various other amazing things, the various other ordinarily extraordinary wows. Every bush is a fire with God. Are you paying attention? But I think this scene with Peter also shows us that our mistakes, our missteps, our fumbles and foibles, our transgressions hold every possibility for grabbing our attention and they hold the capacity to turn us around if we're paying attention. I hope you're paying attention to the wonder and the wow of God at work in this world, calling us to lead people out of slavery and oppression and bondage, which is every bit a part of this world as it was in Moses' day. Can we be like Moses and take note at the wonder of it all and join in God's efforts? And are we paying attention to the mistakes that we make? We make blunders all the time. We mess up. We make mistakes. We wish we could go back and change things. Are we learning from that? We say things we shouldn't say. We put ourselves before others. We try to impress others, which, by the way, is what I suspect Peter may have been trying to do in this scene with Jesus. He sounds so righteous, so pious in his attempt to put Jesus first. Oh, God forbid it. Lord, that'll never happen to you. Peter gives the quintessential Sunday school answer, and in so doing, he gets himself in the most trouble with Jesus you could possibly get into because Jesus forgot about divine things and how they always trump human things. But let's face it, Peter was just being selfish. He couldn't bear the thought of living without Jesus. Divine things put others first. Divine things call for justice. Divine things lead with love. Divine things speak truth to power. Divine things are more concerned with a greater good than a personal gain. And let's face it, 
We often fail and flop and simply get it wrong. Just like Peter, the very rock on which Jesus built the church. So what are we going to do with our mistakes? Because we're going to make mistakes. And when we do, we have a couple of choices. We can either um, beat ourselves up and live in a squalor of shame, believing we are not good enough to be worthy of the unconditional love of God. Or we can become defensive and self-righteous and holier than thou, believing that we are always right, even when we know deep down that sometimes we are wrong. Or there is that third option. I advise the third way, by the way. We can let our mistakes guide us and shape us and inform us and mold us and get our attention to turn us around and change into all that God has created us to be. And that might be the biggest wow of them all, to believe that we can change and become more of the versions of ourselves that God intends. I hope you wow yourself this week. And in so doing, I hope you wow God. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray together. God, how do you get our attention in such a distracting world? We pray today for those that live medically with letters like ADD, ADHD, and any other number of configuration of letters that signify that it is just difficult to pay attention. Grant them access to medication when that is needed. Grant them access to a listening ear and to practices that help to bring calm. And grant to those around them patience and understanding and acceptance. We pray for those whose very lives are themselves a distraction, either by not enough or too much, for both of these can be distractions. So make those with too much generous and make those with not enough strong and creative. We pray that somehow the not enoughs will meet the too muches and the too muches will open their eyes to the not enoughs so that no one has to be distracted by the life that they are living. We pray for those who are distracted 
by chaos, loneliness, worry, grief, depression, and fear. So many things take all of our attention, and rightly so. These are big things, God. We are sorry when anything keeps us from seeing you, and yet we trust that you understand our plight. So help us, O oh God, to pay attention today to who you are and who you are calling us to be. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. On this Labor Day weekend, we give thanks for opportunities to labor and to have something to give. So in these moments of doxology praise, we give thanks for opportunities to give. We pray that we would always be generous and faithful in what we have and who we are. <laughs> 